Average Guys Podcast. What's up, people? This is Diggy Metro. This is Crispy C. <laughs> yo, 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 yo. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Today, we're here with Ali Steierman. He's actually the owner of Riot Sound Inc. And uh, we're going to do a little different of an episode. It's going to be an interview of basically how he started the business, uh, where it's at right now, uh, yep. what drove him to do that, and just Stupidity. give you a little insight. Stupidity drove me to do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So from the jump, where... Where were you born and raised? Um, actually, I was born in uh, Georgia, which was part of the USSR, but I came over to America when I was six. So I came to, um, yeah, I came to Brooklyn, to Brighton Beach, which is like southern Brooklyn. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Should I start again? No, 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 you're good. All right, my bad. Um, yeah, I just got to get used to it. My bad. Yeah, my no bad. problem. All right. Yeah, yeah, so I came over to Brooklyn, right? Um yeah, my parents, when we were leaving um, the Soviet Union, they didn't want me telling anybody in school because I was already in kindergarten. So they told me I was like going to an island to explore, right? They said, we're going to go and there's going to be like, you know, so I had it in my mind, we're going to go like um, to like a Caribbean island. There's going to be like pirates or something because I yeah. was six. Um, and then I got to Brooklyn and I saw like the elevated train and it was like dirty. It was like, what the fuck is this? What kind of island? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but they said, oh, we're actually on an island because Brooklyn's part of Long Island, right? Yeah. So I found out it was an island. So yeah, that was the excuse. Um, yeah. So basically I came, I didn't know I was coming. What made them leave there? It was just shitty. Um, my grandmother wanted like a better life for all of us. On my dad's side, they thought it would get better and they didn't really want my father to leave. But on my mom's side, my grandmother, she kind of like had a vision like that the family like moved to America and she thought it would be more opportunity because it kept getting worse and worse there. Like it was maybe all right in the 60s, 70s. But then like in the 80s, that's when the bread line started. And uh, my grandpa fought in World War II. He was a veteran. So he could like, he had this special card and he could go to like a, the veterans meat store, right? Okay. There was like a meat store straight for veterans. I used to go with him. You go in the back and you get like the good cuts of meat instead of like fucking shit. And this is in the United States? No, no. This, this is, is in Georgia. Yeah, this okay. is in Georgia. So um, we got, we were all right because my grandpa fought in the war. So he had like some, um, you know. They connections. Really, yeah, he had connections because of that. Or they treated the veterans really well, I guess. That was, uh, but my grandma knew it was like time to leave. So in 84, we came over. Um, yeah, so... What was the difference when you first moved over here? What was the difference that you immediately saw? I didn't like it. I, was, I thought that our life was much better over there. I mean, I was like almost seven, uh, turning seven. It was, um, you know, obviously we're really poor in the beginning. My parents had no money. Um, it was dirty. Um, the 80s in New York City, just it wasn't a nice time. Um, it was like the crack AIDS era. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, immediately I saw the graffiti on the trains. So that was kind of, um, and I remember even my grandparents noticed it. They were like, oh, some of those artists are good, but why do they draw on trains? So do you think so that that, that was, was what immediately draw you to the hip hop, kind of one of the elements of hip hop? Yeah, no, I mean, it was definitely noticeable to see the trains going around with all the artwork. It was crazy. We're like, but were you into it or were you under the impression that it was kind of gross as well? I remember kids had markers and they would, um, like in school, people would draw on their notebooks and stuff um, and kind of draw bubble letters and kind of do different styles. Um, but with my friends, if they try to draw in our neighborhood, I'd be like, yo, don't do that in our neighborhood. Um, do that somewhere else. So yeah. I remember I didn't want vandalism in the neighborhood, but I did think the trains were cool. Now, you're an illustrator yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. So I've been drawing since I was three. So um, Have you ever done graffiti? No, nah, I've never done graffiti. Um, just because you just didn't like to see it in your own neighborhood, so you were like, yeah. let me not deface somebody else's or something? Yeah, and I knew I wasn't going to go climb on a train and do it, you know? Like, I, that, yeah, was, that was obvious. That's a different element. When they do it, like, on billboards and shit, it's like super it's kind of crazy i don't actually understand how like some sometimes when you see like graffiti, they do like hanging like when you see graffiti on like an in like overpass and it's like 
really high up, dude, I never understood that. Like, I know you have to be harnessed, but I'm like, how technical is this equipment that they're able to do this? You know, I, I think know that's, 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 that's the whole thing is they want you to, they want to paint in a spot where you're going to look at it and be like, how the fuck did that get there? So it's kind of like, yo, these people have to be super skilled, you know? Right. That's how they get their props. So if you paint, I, I guess there's different ways of getting your props in graffiti. One would be painting in difficult to reach areas. If you don't have a lot of skill, just getting your name there. Um, and the other one would be like technical skill, like with your letters and everything, just the way it looks. But I guess if you don't have that, then you're going to go for tough spots. So people can give you respect for that, you know? Okay. So now growing up, how did you, uh, how were you introduced to hip hop? Pretty much, um, got into music right away. Just listening to the radio, uh, taping stuff on the radio, um, who were some of the first artists that you found yourself drawn to? Or were you into hip-hop from the beginning? Or was there music that you listened to before that? Like, was there uh, native Georgian music? I don't even know what that would be. Russian music? Was there um, any of that that you yeah, were into? Yeah, I mean, I grew up listening to whatever uh, my parents listened to. They listened to some classical music. Um, I remember around the sixth grade, um, I went to a JHS 303. It's actually down the street from uh, Lincoln High School where um, Stefan Marbury went to school and a Sebastian Telfair. So that's kind of like where I grew up. Okay, and that was like a pretty shitty area, correct? Um, yeah, I mean, there was like good parts. Like Brighton Beach was the Russian section. It depends. You couldn't like, if you hung out on your block, it was cool because you knew your friends. Like we just hung out on my block. All my friends were from my block. So it was like three buildings on one side of the block and one big building on the other side. Walking to school, was there any like beef? you had to watch where you walked. So like you didn't want to walk past the high school because something might happen. Um, you kind of had to, from walking to school many times, you figured out the safest way to go to avoid seeing older kids or just being caught out there by yourself. So I was pretty good at that. Um, I just try to keep myself safe. I think do, you, do you feel, I'm sorry to cut you off, but do you feel like uh, ethnicity in New York, like based on your grouping, of where you're from, do you feel like that keeps you safer? Um, because if you're in like an all Russian area, do you feel like the fact that everyone there is Russian keeps you a lot safer from other races? Because I know back then race was a big thing. It was. It was. There was a ton of racial tension. I remember like um, when Mayor Dinkins got elected. It was I think the first black mayor in New York. Um, you know, like all the black kids in the school wilding out because they were like they had pride, but. Their version of pride was like, yo, we're going to, like, I remember this kid, Christian, who's a special ed kid. He was like, yo, I'm going to go mug someone. And he pulled, like, his, his hoodie over his face. And I was, I, was, I was right there. And I was like, yo, I better get the fuck out of here before it's going to be me. That's actually funny because when I was in you high know? school, their idea of fun, like, uh, I went to a high school that was very diverse. And there was a lot of black kids. But, like, for some reason, the black kids' idea of fun was, and, like, I, I have a ton of black boys. Like, I'm Spanish myself, so it's it's not like I'm fucking jumping out and just being like, you know, fuck black people or anything crazy. But right. it's, it's just their idea of fun was going and robbing people. And I never understood that. I guess, like, the oppressed feeling kind of, like, draws them to do crazy shit. But at that time, I never understood why that was fun to them because it's like, I don't, I don't find joy in hurting someone you know but, what i mean like i've never found joy in that like right. I, don't, I never understood that so i could kind of like feel where you're coming from because the same shit was going on and that was when i was in high school so that's not that long ago i graduated in 2010 right you know? and this was like the way i took it is they thought that we had like more than them and that basically if they stole something from us we'd be fine but then they, you know what I mean? It's like, it's crazy though, because you know, white people in this country, like based on like, if you're born and raised here, maybe your family has a little bit more money, but there's a lot of poor white people in this country that really don't have much more. Like there's, there's obviously black families that have a lot more than, than some poor white right. families Ge as well. You know, Ge it's kind of flip flop. Yeah. Like geographically speaking, like when you're talking about like a poor area, it's, it's just a poor area. It's like, you could have everybody there. And then it's like, that's what some people don't understand. It's like, yeah, if they're from so your you neighborhood, could, they're probably yeah, under like the same social you're, standing you're as you. You're robbing somebody from your neighborhood. They're from your neighborhood. What the fuck are you robbing them for? Like, yeah, yeah. You should like rob they don't have any more than you. If you're going to rob anybody, I don't condone that, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. The neighborhood was like, our neighborhood was like probably like 10 blocks, you know. And um, then Coney Island was like right next door. And that's like, that was the black neighborhood. That, so when we went to, uh, well, I went to junior high school in Brooklyn. So 6th, 7th, 8th grade. And then I moved. Um, so those kids, we go to school with the Coney Island kids. 
Um, then there were the Brighton Beach kids. Uh, those were the Russian kids. And there were some Italian kids from like, um, you know, Ocean Parkway, that area. So we're like very south, right? So I lived right on the beach, which was cool. Um, yeah, I mean, even the playground, it was like, um, they'd be like older, I guess, Russian kids or kids that were kind of from our neighborhood. They would kind of protect us. So when we hung out there, let's say when I was like 10 or 11, if uh, kids from Coney Island showed up, like sometimes they come with a basketball or something and be like, yo, let's play, whatever. Like as long as they were cool, everything was cool. But sometimes like when it would get dark, they would like fucking kick you, steal your ball, do shit like that. Yeah. So once it got dark, you kind of just, or maybe like someone would want to borrow your bike and then they'd never come back. Um, or they just steal your bike. Yeah. But yeah, it was ethnic. Like the older kids kind of looked out and it's like, I'm sure if I went into na their neighborhood, it was kind of the same. Like um, they knew when they were coming into our neighborhood, I think that they had to be respectful and also the same way, I think, if we were to go into their neighborhood. Of course. Now, do yeah. you feel like growing up like that and having that kind of, uh, I don't know uh, any other word than like shit going on around you, do you feel like that actually, maybe. do you feel like that actually uh, helped you later on in life? Because I feel like, like stuff like that where you have that fear for other people, I feel like it keeps you more aware throughout the rest of your life. Like I know kids that are completely naive because they grew up in like a very nice neighborhood. So they go to other neighborhoods that are not as nice and they don't know that like you can get robbed. Like there's, there's little things that you can't just do. You know, you can't just walk into a place that like no one knows you and feel comfortable or like talk crazy to someone and think that it's going to be the same as talking crazy to one of your friends from like the suburban area because someone really will like beat the shit out of you. You know what I mean? So like, I feel like growing up in those type of areas maybe uh, keeps you more aware and keeps you safer later on in life. I that's think street that's smart. definitely true. Um, yeah, just, I mean, you're always looking around to see if anyone's coming down the street that you don't know. Um, you know, because um, you know, when you get older, there's not that many fights, right? I yeah. mean, if, or if it's a fight, it's real serious. But when you're 10, 12, 13, yeah, there are a lot of fights. Yeah. You, yeah. can, you can get beat up Every every day you could get beat and up, and for no reason you, at, at that point. Because right. like there's bullies and everything. You know, in life there's not really bullies once you get out of school. But like at that point there's bullies and everything. You know, so you got to watch out. Like there's a kid that's just pissed because his like parents suck, and he's like walking around the hallways just like beating the shit out of people. You know, Facts. right. So yeah, you definitely makes you more aware, and later on it um, enables you to read people a little better. Um, and um, yeah, and sometimes when you're older, you are in certain situations where you kind of know you, you should act a certain way, but someone who wasn't exposed to that kind of environment at an earlier age, they might not know and they might, they might act out or not say the right thing. And I think, yeah, being in that environment definitely uh, puts you in a state of mind where you're always kind of evaluating things and... I mean, everybody says that. So, and but it's it's I, true. I, yeah, it's now, definitely true. Fast forward to when's the first time that you uh, listened to hip hop? When was the first time that you really like? Who's the first artist that you heard that really drew you to it? That that was like, this is my thing. Um, I guess going to school and um, you know, I was always into music, so I started listening to the radio. There was freestyle. There was hip hop. Um. I remember probably the first thing that really drew to, uh, drew me into it was uh, hearing uh, Public Enemy, um, 911 is a joke, because there was a huge campaign in the city at that time. I think Mayor Koch was the mayor. Um, and it was all like, if you're in trouble, call 911. You know, they were really hyping that. And that was on all the police cars, dial 911. They put all these new posters up. And then I remember being in the schoolyard, like, I guess it wasn't like recess, but I guess it's gym and they just let us out or something. There wasn't a teacher. I, I don't know what it was, but someone had a, like a boom box and they were playing that. Um, yeah. And to me, it was just crazy. I didn't know you could talk against the government like that. Say 911 is a joke to say that in, um, in a song. I didn't realize because in some countries you can't. Right. And like, I didn't even be, realize like, for that. Like Right. It's just not accepted. And I didn't even think in America you could do that. And uh the things that were saying in the song make sense. They said, uh, you know, I'll call a cab because a cab will come quicker and basically that police aren't gonna go into bad neighborhoods. Um and when I listened to that song, I was like, This is crazy. So I just kind of um yeah, I'd say I got into like public enemy first. Um the bomb squad had amazing production. Um 
Also, uh, I remember hearing Bell Biv DeVoe Poison for the first time, and just like the bass line, I was like, this is crazy. Like yeah. someone was playing it in the back of the bus. We went like on a day trip somewhere. Um, so from then on, it was like uh, I was always looking for it on the radio. Uh, even if I went out to the park, I would uh, have the radio station on, um, and I would put a 90-minute tape in and a hit record, and then I'd come back at night and see the songs that got recorded. Yeah. To see if I caught something that you know I wanted. Hip hop is is a very cool genre, and I know a lot of like uh, a lot of people don't like hip hop. But the thing that I like the most about it is that it's not it's not something like it's not suburban angst. You know what I mean? Where it's like like basically like fucking parents suck and like I just want to leave and I want to kill myself and all that crazy shit. Where like hip hop is like real struggle. It's right. like actual like like I'm very poor like there's poverty around me and there's there's a real and discrimination also that as well yeah. but it like really taps into like some of the biggest issues in america and i feel like a lot of other music doesn't do that like if you think about like the hippie era like they were tapping into the war and shit like that right but right. that's they were doing it back then in their own way but, but that, that's talking that, that, that's, that's not relevant now that's right, also yeah. talking about what's outside of this country like the war they're talking about other countries at that time. They're not talking about what's in this country. Like, right, right. These people in hip hop came out with a way to talk about the problems in our country, which I think is why so many people are drawn to it because it's like, you know, everybody, everybody, whether you're in the best area ever, everybody knows a great, like a bad area, you know? And I think that that really shows them without actually having to go there and see it themselves. It actually shows them a peek inside to that area, you know? I think I just related to it because, um, we're pretty much poor, and uh, even like as far as like the white kids, we I, I felt like I was always the poorest for some reason. Mm. Um, I guess my parents were saving money so they could move, but like I didn't have a color TV or anything, you yeah. know, to like the '90s. Um, so I just related to it because I felt like an underdog uh, also. So I think anybody that's in a bad situation, you listen to the music, and it's kind of it could uplift you. It could kind of, you know, put the things that you're going through in perspective and kind of um, put it in a way where things are bad now, but one day I'm going to come up. I'm going to have my de my day, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what it communicates, that things are shitty now, but it's not going to always be like this. I'm going to get over one day. And, um, yeah, that's what I got out of it, and that's what drew me to it. And like I said, the social issues, I thought it was just crazy. Um you know, even though it wasn't my personal struggle, um, I but it was in a way. It was. It was like, in a like, way. It in wasn't. Way, it right. wasn't in terms of like the the guns and the violence, but it was in terms of the poverty and all that. Christian, you had something to say? Going back to your point about uh, like the hippies and like or like the hippie movement and their music, like them speaking about war and all that. Um, I feel like the reason that people. Uh, were drawn to like uh, you know like Public Enemy and shit like that is because it was more prevalent around them, like what was going on. For sure. So like the the hippie movement though also was like because they weren't living in like bad neighborhoods, so it's like they were just watching TV, hearing about what was going on around the world. So that's what they spoke about. Yeah. They they didn't have to worry about like the cops outside terrorizing them more well, or less. Up until I feel like till like a Jimi Hendrix, I don't think that black people really had a place in that type of rock music but black people started rock music of course right. but so going but back yeah. black people start a lot of things that they don't yeah. get credit for right you know but i feel like Jimi hendrix really like broke out as because if you think about it all the people that were going on at that time like woodstock type times mm -hmm. Jimi hendrix was really the only important black person around that right Sly and the Family Stone, yeah, played, they're a funk band. Uh, they were, they were. I know they played Woodstock. But that type of that type of rock, that's kind of the same as every other, like a uh, Mark Morris. You know what I mean? Like yeah, I know what you're saying. Though. Now, I, yeah. Now, uh, so take it back to you. Now, after you heard Public Enemy, you get into uh, hip hop. When do you start DJing? Pretty much right away. We wanted to like. I wanted like. I had a couple of friends. Basically, I told them about it, and basically, we wanted to start DJing because it was just something kids talked about in school. I remember this kid Gary. He said he got turntables, and uh, you know, we knew that that was kind of like a gateway into the music. We didn't really know what to do with it. 
Um, but I remember like walking past Radio Shack and they had like maybe one or two DJ mixers. So kind of look in the window and see what's on there and figure out how to, how it works, you know, just by looking at it. Yeah. Um, probably in like 89, 90, um, we had two turntables. Uh, my parents had an old turntable and then like a newer one. So what we did is um, I figured this out by looking at the mixer in the window. Um, I just hooked one turntable up to the left channel, one to the right. Um, and then you could fade with the, with the balance because the balance wasn't like a knob. It was like an up and down thing. Um, so you could use the balance like a crossfader. And then we put the left and right speakers next to each other. So the sound would always come out of the same spot. So when you faded from one turntable to the other, it's not like it was like coming from one yeah, side yeah, of the room didn't and really lose anything. Right. Um, so we tried doing that and then we went, um, there's this place called Caesar's Bay Bazaar, um, in Brooklyn. Uh, it was like a flea market and they sold records. So we would go up there and buy records. Um, just every, anything that was, that was out, um, at the time. Um, yeah, they had everything. Everything was on vinyl. Um, we had some 45s. But pretty much it died because, yeah, we didn't have money to get real equipment and uh, the turntables didn't have pitch controls, so you couldn't really adjust the speed, you know, so you couldn't blend it right. Yeah. Um, I remember, though, I had a friend that used to always hang around with us and we would always make fun of him for being stupid. Um, and uh, we got this record uh, and it had a remix on it which I guess he didn't know what a remix was and he had never heard it before. And we just like flipped the record over, put on a remix of whatever it was. And he was like, holy shit, you guys are doing that? And we we're like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he, he thought, thought that you guys were like big money at that point. <laughs> yeah, he thought we we're like remixing it live. Yeah, like, yeah. and we're just finally like after a couple of days, we're like, yo, it's just a record, man. Like, there's <laughs> yeah, yeah. another track, you know? <laughs> now, did you, like when did you start DJing, uh, at like actual gigs and all that stuff did that come way later or did yeah you start that to- came later um because i never had money to get equipment so i didn't get gear i think till like 99 um by that point um hip-hop had gotten kind of commercialized and uh the rave scene came along like techno came along and i kind of looked at that because it's funny like now you go to a hip-hop show i've been to a ton right um back then you kind of just never thought about it like it wasn't for us like we could enjoy it uh on the radio we could buy the records we could listen to the albums but you never had it in your mind like oh i'm gonna go see big daddy kane or something yeah like you just it wasn't even like an option it's crazy how things when you're a kid like so many things seem impossible like even for me uh doing this whole hip-hop thing when i was a kid it just seemed like like, yo, I want to rap. I want to have, like, recordings of myself. But, like, I don't know the first thing about that. And it's like, I can't go to a studio. I thought you had to be signed to even make music. You know what I mean? From, right. from childhood. I thought, like, someone has to discover you, and then that's how you start putting out music. I didn't know that you could, like, do it on your own, and then that's how you get discovered. You know? So it's, like, so <laughs> flip side. And, and I feel like with DJing as a kid, you think the same thing. It's like those DJs like somehow got signed and now they're DJing or those DJs just like walked into a club and they started DJing and that's how they blew up. Like, well, we also realized that we were young, you know, um, but pretty much, um, what opened the door for me, like wanting to do it after, like I said, we did it maybe for like a few months with like, um, the rigged setup. And then it was like, yeah, this isn't going to work. This isn't a real, you know, setup. So just stop. Um, then I moved to long Island. Um, and pretty much when uh, Techno and Rave came, it was like, okay, this is kind of the same thing, but it's like for white kids, you know? Like, we could go to the events. We could, like... Yeah, because at that point, hip-hop, you couldn't really go to the shows because it would it would cause issues, right? I, I don't know. I don't know if it would, because maybe it wouldn't cause any issues. Like I, But that was the idea. The idea that, was that like, was... I'm scared. Like, not I'm scared, but like, I just don't want to go where I'm not welcome. Maybe that, yeah. plus I didn't know anybody that was going, you yeah, know, yeah, it was, yeah. so it was kind of like that, um, but um, yeah, um, so it was like, hip-hop already was starting to get commercialized, and I had heard some drum and bass remixes of hip-hop tracks, uh, they would like remix J. with the Damager, or like, um, you know, they would remix a Wu-Tang song or a Rakim song, and the beats were like, it was fresh, it was like break beats, so I was like, this is crazy, and I was like... Um, you know, um, a lot of my white friends are into this, whatever, you know. Um, now, I shouldn't say that because 
I had a lot of white friends that were into rap music also. But I guess rap music was getting cheesy pretty much around, you know. Uh, when you started really like getting into DJing in, in terms of like going and doing events. Yeah, well, the events came later, but I was like, this is something I can do. And I was like, I know music. Because basically what I would do for that 10 years, I would just sit in my room and make like pause tapes. So I'll make tapes for people. So um, I'll just, uh, you know. Explain what a pause tape is. A pause tape is basically you have a, you know, you, it's a cassette tape. Um, and you just pick your own songs and you put it on a tape. And it's a 90-minute tape. And the idea is you know, um, is the same as, it's just programming. You want the songs to sound good in, in the order that they're in. So you want you want to like show up at your friend's house and be like, yo, I made this tape. For them to put it in and basically for the intensity of the tape to run the whole 45 minutes on one side without like it getting to a point where like, okay, yeah, let's put on something else now. So you want it to just be like a steady groove the whole time. You yeah. You want it to like drop out at any point and be like, all right, this song kind of sucks. Let's, you know. Right, because like, you felt like you'd get kind of like props for that. And then someone would be like, yo, could I copy that off you and stuff like that? Or can you make me one? So it was like, I started doing that. I did that for many years. I guess I learned programming. Um, just like as far as putting the songs in a good order. And then, um, yeah, then I started, um, I finally got, um, I think my junior year of college, uh, my parents gave me book money. And I was like, fuck this. I know these classes I don't need books for. So I just went out. And uh, got turntables and a mixer, and I started doing it probably after two years. Started getting like gigs here and there. Just got to know some people. Um, people pretty much I knew, um, I knew of already. But then you kind of it's a small it's a small scene, right? Yeah. So you become part of it. Um, you go out. You always kind of see the same people. Um, you know, a lot of people, it becomes like a family to them. Like, and it was never like that for me because, um, I don't know, I just felt like I had a real family. Like, I don't want to be with these people all the time. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it's like a tight-knit group. Hip-hop's kind of like that as well. And I've right. never fit into that mold of things because, like, I know a lot of kids that they go to everyone's shows and, like, they're... And I just never felt comfortable doing that because I just felt like it's kind of corny. It's kind of like everyone's kind of dick riding each other and i always felt like yo i don't want to look like that guy like i'm not going to be at your show like like jumping to some shit that i'm not even really feeling just because we're supposed to be friends when we're really not you know yeah that's exactly the same deal yeah. and um yeah it's like once you know everybody it's like you can't kind of go out i was always for me it was always about the music going out and kind of being anonymous and listening to the music and just like absorbing the vibe when you go out and you know everyone it's kind of after a while, it gets weird because then you just end up talking to everyone the whole time. And it's kind of like about that. That kind of becomes your social and circle. And does everyone's sound kind of start sounding the same at that point? Because when you're around a lot of people that make the same stuff as you, I feel like at some point you just sound like them. Yeah, that's what I thought. And, uh, you know, I would kind of like maybe call people out on it. And now I wish I hadn't because it's like, all right, everyone, not everyone has the same level of talent. People have different ways that they approach maybe a potential career or whatever they're trying to do. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I wish um, I wasn't as tough on some people because basically it was my idea, like coming from a hip hop mindset is like, you know, play the, the hardest tracks and just like, you know, my shit's better than yours. You suck kind of thing. But it's like those people were kind of more, like I said, there's like more family oriented. It wasn't like, it wasn't, they, they, they didn't understand that. They were just like, yo, what the fuck are you talking about? We're all trying, like, why are you, like, picking on people? They didn't consider it as, as, like, biting from your, like, sound. They considered it, like, oh, like, he brought up something new. I should take this and, like, put it into my stuff and try to, like, mesh it in. Right. With DJing, that's, like, a big thing, right? Like, for me, what I, like... I had like an unwritten rule for myself, not for anybody else. If I if I heard like a lot of people, they would hear you play a track and they would come up and they'd ask you, yo, what is that? You know, so they could go out and buy it and they could have it. Like I would never do that because I was like If they're playing it, then you shouldn't play it. Right. Like yeah. the the other thing, like if I had a track that I played, like I found myself and then I went out and I heard someone else playing it, I'll be like, okay, cool. That guy found the same track. And I obviously I would know what it is because I have it too. Then I would just keep playing it because it was like, all right, he also went down the same path or whatever. But some people would find out what, let's say they heard a really good set and that person played 15 different records. They would uh, find out 
as many records as they could out of that set. They'd go buy all those records and practice with those records. Basically, like, I get, like, the way I see it is, like, you're trying to, like, steal that person's shine. Yeah, and that's, that's like, how it kind of is. And I feel like a lot of people do that in hip-hop, too, where they see a lot of performers and they see that they're doing something that's successful for them. And they try to recreate it. And I never wanted to be that guy. That's why I don't like going to shows a lot because I don't want to see someone. And it's weird with music. It's like you might not intentionally do it, but sometimes you just go out, you hear something, and then it's drawn to you. So you just recreate it. While I'd rather not listen to them and kind of make my own shit and want someone to kind of come out and do that to my music. Mm -hmm. I want to be the, the innovative person in that uh, instance. I don't want to be the person following them, you know? I completely agree, but also... I mean, everybody, everybody's inspired, I guess. I mean, for me, I guess what I was trying to do was like, um, I really like Bomb Squad production. I really like Public Enemy. Uh, pretty much, I wanted to take that sound and like put it across with techno. So if I hadn't heard that, then I wouldn't have had my idea either. So everybody like borrows. All art is, is just a Recycle. process of recycling. Right, yeah. Of so, all right, let's backtrack a little bit because you said you went to college. What did you go to college for? Um, I went to college for economics. Basically, um, that when I was around 17, I wanted to basically draw comic books for a living. I wasn't going to go to school at all. Um, when I was 17, I went to... The, they have the comic book convention at the Javits Center, so I brought my art just to show people. Um, it was a different time. There was no internet. Like I didn't have a car. There was no like emailing. But whatever. Some guy was like, if you keep working hard, you'll be, wor you'll be working professionally in six months. So I was like, awesome. Like I can do really do this, all right? So um, I was like, all right, fine. Uh, I'll go to college for a little bit, and then I'll keep at this, and I'll drop out. Like I'll get a job or something, you know, Marvel or whatever, you know? Uh, but once I got to college, it was kind of fun, and the kind of the drawing kind of faded away a little bit, and I ended up staying. Um, yeah, and I graduated, got my degree in economics, and uh, comics changed. Like a lot of the Japanese animation stuff came in, and I wasn't feeling that. It was like because it wasn't an American like style of art, so I thought it was like kind of weak. And I was like, all right, this is my time to like get out of this because it's changing anyway. I'm not feeling it. Like there's other stuff going on. Um, yeah. And that's, now you continued your education, right? Like you didn't just go for an undergrad. Yeah. I, I got a job at an ad agency in the city, uh, for I think seven months. I worked in Manhattan. It was cool, but I wasn't making a lot of money. And I kind of realized like, it's not like I'm going to get a raise where they're going to double my salary or triple my salary. Like it's going to be like 5%, 5%, 5 like it's going to take me forever to like, Make, make real a, money. Right. Yeah. So I was like, all right, just let me go back to school. Um, yeah, I went uh, I went to Penn State. I got my MBA. Um, and, and Penn State is where I started Ride Sound, like after like maybe a year, because there's a two-year two -year program. All right, that's what I wanted to get into. So the initial idea for Ride Sound, what was that? Um, basically, when I went away to school, um, around that time is... Um, when I really started making um, a lot of mixtapes and CDs and recording the stuff that I was doing, and it got to a point where I liked it, I would you know, give out the CDs and stuff. And um, yeah, basically to get gigs, you either had to uh, just suck up to promoters, give out flyers, do all types of shit. I mean, I wasn't even in New York, so I couldn't even do that. So I had seen how some people started their own events and that's how they got really big. They started their own events. They would just headline their old events. They would get more and more people. And before you know it, they'd have 5,000 people at their own events and they're, they're the headliner. And then through that, they pretty much get an international following. Yeah. So I was like, that's probably the way to go for me, like try to throw events. And uh, I didn't really care about making money. But I was like, maybe whatever, it'll be a cool thing to do. And yeah, and then basically I could play. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, so that's the beginning of Riot Sound. Like, yeah. like the events was the beginning. What did it, when did it turn into the website? Um, we had the website pretty quick, but the website was more geared towards just promoting the events. The first event we did in Manhattan pier, it was on a pier. It was on a boat they, that sank. It was called a frying pan and then they pulled it back out of the water. So it was all rusty and it was like floating. Okay. Uh, uh, it's called Industry Shakedown. Um, 
think we had like 20 DJs, uh, but there was a terrorist scare that day. This was shortly after 9-11, like maybe two years after, like a power station blew up. Um, so it was a decent turnout. We got maybe, I don't know, 150 people, but for the work I put into it, it was like, I wanted more out of it. So that was kind of shitty. So there was no money coming in when you first started RiotSound.com, right? Right. There was no, there was really, the only way in my mind to get money was to build the website up to a point where I could sell ads on the website. And that was pretty far off because you had to get a lot more traffic than we were getting. And um, yeah, I didn't really know anything about building a website, like the back end, making it work, uh, none of that. So when did you get into the uh, hip hop interviews? Because I know that you started doing that at one point. Um, so basically, um, I would write album reviews because I was like, all right, I know music. Let me write some album reviews. I'd actually interned at Ultra Records, which uh, the guy who owned it also owned Empire Management, the managed gang star. So they were like all in the same office. Um, actually, when I came back after that summer is when I started Ride Sound. I was like, let me try to uh, write some music reviews. Like I reviewed Gangstars, the owners, and I sent it to uh, the guy, Fat Gary, that uh, managed Guru and Premier. Um, just to, I didn't want anything out of it, but he kind of knew that I was into hip hop a lot. And we had a good rapport. So I was like, yo, this is what I'm doing. Check this out. Basically, I just wanted him to read the review and be like, yo, this is dope. This describes the album in a good way. That's yeah. really all I wanted out of it. Okay, and then you took that and started doing more reviews and... Right, so maybe after I did like five or six reviews, I remember one of the albums that we really looked forward to coming out was uh, Cormega's The Testament, and they got shelved uh, because Cormega was supposed to be on the firm, as everybody knows. Um, then he got replaced by Nature. He had the dispute with Nas. I remember seeing the posters in the subway. I remember seeing the posters for the Testament in the, um, in the Source magazine. Um, and actually, I had a friend who was a DJ, and he gave me a Violator promo tape. And on there, there was tracks by Cormega and uh, Crew. Um, and that was like, I don't know who had it, but it was only like for radio or anything. And I heard those Cormega tracks and I was like, this is fucking awesome. Like Dead Man Walking was on there and he had a freestyle. We went over like five different beats. So, and I liked them in the first couple of tracks with the firm. So I was really looking forward to that album. And when it got shelved, it was like, fuck. Uh, but um, a few years later, The Realness came out, um, which was an independent album that he did, which was actually very successful. It sold over 100,000 copies. So I was like, let me review this. I was like, this isn't the testament, but I was like, I want to see what this guy's up to because so much time has passed. Yeah. Uh, so I wrote a review. I sent it. I forget who I sent it from, but then uh, Cormega's publicist like, got back to me and he was like, oh, do you want to interview him? And I remember thinking about it. I was like, an interview? Why the fuck would I want to interview him? <laughs> you know? But, but I, 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 didn't, I didn't reply like that. I was like, and then I was like, I guess I was like, I was like, I guess I should interview him. I was like, that's kind of cool, yeah. right? Because I got the review on and the website. And to be in contact with someone that like, that's like a weird thought. Like I just wrote a review about his album. Now I could talk to him. Even if it went bad, you could just say it happened. Like, yeah, yeah. Like I talk, I was talking to Cormega. Yeah. yeah. Right. And I really, like that was an artist that I really liked, even though I hadn't heard that much. Well, I heard the realness, I guess, but he didn't have that much stuff out. Um, I remember right when I heard him on Affirmative Action, I was like, this guy's like, it's so hard, like how he's like fucking, you know? Yeah. Um, so I was like, all right. So then I did the interview with him. He was cool. I remember I asked him like the first interview. It was like a little weird because like instead of just asking questions, like some parts, like I just talked to him, you know, like because uh, I didn't really know how to do an interview. But overall, it turned out good. Um, probably on the phone with him for like a half hour. Um, I recorded it. Um, I typed it out like I wrote an intro. When I sent it back to them, they were like, oh, this is really good. Um, there's a publicist. Uh, her name was Jackie O. Um, and then she started sending me shit like for other artists that she was representing. So she sent me something for like Infamous Mob. Um, and I remember I interviewed them. So it all kind of started with her. And then uh, a couple of other people started emailing me. You know, uh, this guy, uh, I forget, he's actually a very known publicist for like independent hip hop, Matt something. Um, yeah, he did a ton of artists. And um, 
Yeah, every time someone had a project, um, let's say they had an album coming out, they would have like a media day where they basically sit in a room and uh, they'll sit on like a speakerphone and do interviews all the time, yeah. uh, all day, right? Maybe they'll do it for a couple of days. So I started doing more and more, um, and probably I've done like over 150 over like a four year span or something like that. That's awesome. Um, yeah, but again, I wasn't making any money. So when did you get to the point where you were like, all right, this is not lucrative. Let me start selling shit. Well, the feedback was really good. I'd always get really good feedback from like almost everybody. Um, oh, what was cool? I uh, just mentioned like I interviewed T. Rogers, which was one of the first founders of the Bloods. I interviewed people like in jail, stuff like that. So I was like, I thought eventually, again, I would get enough traffic to do have ads on the website yeah that, that was that was the idea and that, that's why i stuck with it for like a number of years because i was like the more i do and, uh, and 150 in four years is pretty fucking insane so yeah, you would think I, after that amount and with people that are like listened to you would think that that would actually build traction i think that the problem was is um i think it's a problem that a lot of people have they think just if the content's good everything else is going to happen on its own and that's not the that's not the case you have to have a back end. You have to be optimized for Google. Like, I didn't do any of that. Yeah. It was just the interviews. I put some photos up. If I had done that, maybe there would have been a chance that we would have gotten more traffic. I mean, we got some, but, you know, maybe we're up to, like, 3,000 visits a day. But it's like you need 50,000, yeah. you know? All um, right. So so then you stop, you stop doing the interviews uh, as much, and you start... How do you start selling stuff? I didn't stop doing the interviews. I was just, uh, while I was doing it, I was like, um, basically, I'm broke. I need money. Um, I had four Technique 1200s turntables, and one was black, right? Three were silver, one was black. I was like, I'll sell the black one, you know, and then I'll have three. Like, nobody uses four turntables. You just, you know, three is, like, more than enough. So, um I went on eBay, I guess I took a picture of it, um, I put it up there, I think, yeah, I think I got like $350 or something, and I was like, holy shit, like, this really works, like, you can put something online and people will pay you, like, um, so, I was like, this is a way to make money, so then I started making uh, mixtapes, like, greatest hits, I make, like, LL Cool J's greatest hits, put, like, 18 tracks on there, make Jay-Z's greatest hits, and uh, just bootleg CDs. Um, and I would sell them for like five, six dollars on eBay. Um, and uh, yeah, I would go, um, or if I, fi I find a mixtape I like, I just bootleg it, make copies, photocopy the cover, sell it on eBay. Uh, one day, um, this guy, Jay Love, who's like a known DJ and producer, I think he's from Queens, um, he contacted me via eBay and he was like, oh, pissed off, like you're stealing my shit. And I was like, and he was like, it's his bootleg. And in my mind, I wasn't really stealing because he was stealing. He's making a mixtape. Yeah, of yeah like, like it's a it's a fucking whole industry of stealing. Right. So I was like, yo, like DJ mixtape game at that point was like, I'm just going to say words over fucking other your people's song, tracks. Yeah. And then it's going to play and I'm just going to drop like fucking and I'm going to make money it. off of it. Exactly. So it's not it wasn't really like a game of like uh, honesty and and fucking, you know? Yeah, like at all. That's what I thought. And in my mind, I was like, yo, and I wrote him like this whole thing. I was like, yo, you're not keeping it real with like this and that. Like this is like like you're doing the same shit and like. I don't know. And I was like, yo, I'll send you a few T-shirts if you want. Because I had Ride Sound T-shirts. Like, I was like, I, I didn't like read him a lecture. But like in an email, I was like, dude, like, what are you talking about? Um, and he was like, um, I think he threatened me. He sent me like a, a map quest thing of like him, his, him coming to my house, you know, like the directions from like where he was to my house. He was like, yo, I'm going to show up there, whatever. So um, I didn't know your house. Yeah, I don't know. I think he got it through eBay. That was the thing. He was like, I know where you live. You know, that was... That's fucked. Yeah. yeah. That, that was the whole implication. I was, and I was just like, dude, like, I don't want a problem, whatever. I forget what I said exactly. But he was like, yo, if you want... I guess he was like semi-feeling what I was saying. Like, he was like, if you want, why don't you just buy the mixtapes for me and like resell them? Then you have like color covers and it'll be nice. And I was like, oh, 
I was like, I can do that. I was like, all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, if you knew that beforehand, you probably would have done that anyway. Yeah, I was like, this is. I was like, I don't have a problem with that. And I was like, that way the covers look nice. Uh, I think it was cheap. It was like two dollars. He was selling it to me for. I was selling it for six. That was fine. So I was like, oh, this is like an interesting thing to happen. Well, I mean, you weren't making more money though, because now you're giving him a cut, right? Right, but I don't think my mixtapes had like black and white covers, and uh, but also you felt better doing it probably because you were like, well, now he doesn't give a fuck. Well, he doesn't give a fuck, and then he's now a, a cut of it. So but on top like, of that, right, these I'm are like official, like, so it's yeah, like you're yeah, yeah. selling them, but they're actually official. Where more people are probably gonna buy the official right. one yeah. than, than then. So you're actually making more money, even if you're paying him money. Yeah. Right. I could sell them for more, and then I was like, yo, I have a connection with this guy, and I respected what he did, like, because um, a lot, of, you know, he would do mixtapes with a lot of the underground artists that I liked, so I thought, this is cool, this isn't bad, um, and then I was like, you know, this is like when the internet's around now, so I'm like, oh, I can con contact other people, like Street Wars was a big mixtape uh, series, so I contacted P. Cutter, I said, yo, can I buy your uh, CDs and, like, resell them? So, yeah, I would just pay him a PayPal. They would send me, like, a box of, like, 300 CDs in the mail. I would put them up on eBay. Um, and uh, I was doing this for a while. Um, it kept getting bigger and bigger. Um, and um, also, I was doing the interviews. And a lot of my interviews came through E1. Because, um, I, I mean, I wouldn't do, like, major label stuff. Like, I wouldn't do, like, Eminem or Jay-Z or, like, but anyone that was, like, on Koch, like, indie, but, like, known, I could pretty much get, you know? Um, so I remember thinking like, why don't I start selling records? Um, and I knew Koch had the death row catalog. Like they had the chronic doggy style, all eyes on me, Machiavelli. And I was like, those are some of the biggest selling albums. I was like, all time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I just contacted them one day. Cause I was like, I already kind of have a sales model. I was like, yo, you guys like know me from the interviews. Like, can you put me in contact with like, you know, I want to sell records um on the website or whatever i told them it was on the website even though it was on ebay so they did i started selling the records um and the records were 20 dollars each they weren't five you know so i was actually making more money um so i started doing that um then i you know started reaching out to other people that were selling records and i already had a thing i was like oh i sell death row stuff can you you know fat beats can you hook me up um i already do this whatever um, then I started selling more and more records. Then I started selling um, the cartridges, the gear. Um, and it just grew like over 10 years. I didn't really mean to get into the business of doing this, but just started pretty much out of necessity. Um, and I guess it turned into like a vinyl shop and uh, DJ gear and uh, pro audio. That's pretty much That's what. awesome. So when did you get into uh, Amazon? Because I know that you started doing everything on ebay but then you also sell on amazon so when did you start that um probably like seven years back right initially it was all about ebay uh, i didn't really want to go on amazon i don't know why i don't like change i just like doing the same shit over and over if it works why change, why it? change it yeah right but um eventually i noticed like you know you get to learn because when you get a record, let's say you get The Chronic, you want to see what other people are, are selling it for. So you look it up, you see what they're selling it for. You kind of get to know your competitors, like the other people. And then, um, you know, I started looking at Amazon once in a while, and I was like, all these fucking people are on Amazon too. I'm the only idiot that's only on eBay. I was like, so they're making money off this, and then they're making money over here. So I was like, um, let me try this. So started doing Amazon. That turned out well. Um, yeah, and uh, it just kept growing. And uh, I think now we do like 60% eBay, 40% Amazon, something like that. Word. So you would say over a seven-year span, that's when your uh, company grew the most. Like basically over seven years, you guys got to the point of being where you're at now. I would say probably over the last like, yeah, I guess six or seven years, right? Because uh, before I was like married, so I had like two incomes, you know, um, and basically, uh, my ex-wife now, she got laid off. And I was like, all right. I was like, I have to make this work. Again, it was like out of necessity. Um, because at the, while she was making money, I was making some money. And I was like, I could still do the interviews. You kind of like don't know where to go. You're like, I have this. I have that. I was like, oh, maybe I'll do DJing. Or maybe I'll start producing or something. You don't really, you think that all options are open. 
once you have to make money, only one option is open. Yeah, making money. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah. So, like, once she got laid off, it was like, all right, I got to focus on this, uh, get it as big as possible. So, yeah, that's probably was like, yeah, seven years ago. And, yeah, it went from there. Okay. So, uh, over that course of time, um, how do you feel about doing business like that? Do you Do you actually like what you're doing or do you still do it out of necessity in terms of, like, the same feeling from when you started? Did you find a love for it? I don't know if I found a love for it. I enjoy it. I like, I like, I mean, I like when people say like, oh, you guys have a cool selection or like, you know, um, yeah, pretty much that's the one compliment that I enjoy because I pick all the records. So when someone says you have a good selection, I guess that's the best thing that you could say. Uh, I mean, I enjoy it, but... I think that a lot of creative people get into a situation where um, the way to make money isn't the creative way. And that's fine. I mean, um, you know, sometimes that's dictated by luck, sometimes by talent, all different things. Um, I feel that I'm fortunate that I could be my own boss. Um, I don't have to rely on anybody. Um, and the business could still grow. There could be a lot, a, a lot more things that could happen in the future. So I'm looking towards the future. Um, to see how big it gets. I guess if it was the way it is now, for example, for the rest of my life, I'm not, I'm not satisfied with that. I would want to see, if I am doing it, I'd want to see it get it's even bigger. Yeah, get yeah. even bigger. In a strange way, all of your passions, well, I wouldn't call the business side a passion for you, but I would say that because you went to school for that, in a strange way, everything that you're kind of into meshed and you're kind of doing everything that you we're doing regardless in life you know you you went to school for the business you dj'd you loved vinyl you loved hip-hop you loved uh electronic you loved all these things and now everything kind of meshed to start a business based on all of that yeah i think there's some truth to that and i think the longer you wait um in the beginning, when you're doing the business, you're like, fuck, I don't really want to do this. This is like not selling out, but you're like, this is corny. I'm selling CDs online. Like, what am I doing? Uh, but as it starts to grow, um, you realize that actually opens avenues um, that if you want to do something creative, you now have the money. You can do it. Um, you might not have a passion for it anymore. You might not care. But um Making money and doing something productive puts you into the posi into a position to later on incorporate the things that you really enjoy into the model of everything. So I feel like even down the road, um, as long as the business keeps growing, maybe other opportunities will emerge. Who knows? You know. Um, but having a successful enterprise definitely puts you in a position to have options. I guess. Awesome. And now you guys just opened a store uh, recently, right? Mm-hmm. And where's that store at? Um, it's in Newton, New Jersey. Um, that's not a very exciting location, but uh, <laughs> at the same time, we do still do most of our business online. Um, you know, uh, it's close to where I live. Uh, if we, say, try to open in Brooklyn or something, it would really... Um, you know, you're taking a big risk. Rents are high. There's more competition. Where we are, there's not a lot of other shops. Not any, actually. Uh, like what Perfect. we do. Um, it works. It works. I mean, it works now. And later on, who knows what could happen. Awesome. So uh, do you have any last words? Do you have a uh, social media that you want to put out there? Um, I guess, yeah. Go to ridesound underscore nyc.com is Instagram. Um, and always remember, you got to go for the asshole first. <laughs> no seriously you gotta go for the asshole first you heard it here first skip ahead skip ahead <laughs> alright guys this is Just Some Average Guys podcast we are signing out this is Diggy Metro this is Crispy oh I what do I say <laughs> say your name say your name this is Alex hey. alright peace out guys